Good evening. Please take your copy of the scriptures and open them to the book of Romans. Book of Romans, chapter 5. It's my privilege this evening to not only share the word with you, but also to lead in our celebration of the Lord's table together. And that is what it is, a celebration of what Christ has done for us. And that was why I chose for us to go to Romans chapter 5 this evening. I'm going to read the first five verses, and then we will dive into our text. Romans chapter 5, beginning with verse 1, we read these words. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only so, but we glory in tribulations also, knowing that tribulation worketh patience, and patience experience, and experience hope, and hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. Let's pray together. Our Father and our God, we are thankful for the privilege once more to gather together as the assembly of saints to worship you in beauty and in truth, to worship you together as redeemed people who have been justified by faith and have these wonderful blessings as a result. And even as we remember the cost of that, we do so with humble joy because it is our souls that you bought and redeemed to yourself. So we want this service, our communion and celebration of the Lord's table, all to be a celebration and an act of praise and thankfulness to you. And all because of what Jesus has done, in whose name we pray, amen. In the text before us today, we see this first phrase, therefore having been justified by faith. I think the one thing that we have to remember as Christians who have been redeemed by the blood of Christ is the means of our justification. When we say justified, a lot of times we kind of talk in terms of, I've been, I've been justified in what I did. So here's my, here's my reasons for why I did X, Y, or Z. I'm justifying myself. I'm declaring myself to be right or just. But here when we talk about justification, we're talking about our standing before God. The one question all of us in humanity have to ask, what is your relationship to God? And sometimes we talk about some people have a relationship with God and some people don't. And I understand the terminology and and some of that I think is even biblical terminology because we talk about, does God know us? And one day there'll be people who say to Jesus, you know, Lord, Lord, didn't we do this and didn't we do that? And he'll say, I never knew you. And he's talking about, I didn't have an intimate relationship with you. But in another sense, everybody has a relationship with God. The question is, what is it? For those who have been justified by faith, as we're about to see, they have a relationship of joy, of hope, of peace, of life. But for those who have not been justified, those who have not been declared righteous with God, Paul here in Romans says they have a relationship with God, and that's a relationship of antagonist. God is not your friend, and you are not his friend. 
So the question tonight, before we even get to the text, I have to ask you is this, where are you with God? What is your relationship? Is it that relationship of one who has been justified, declared righteous because of what Jesus has done? Or is it a relationship of one who is hostile towards God? Your mind is alienated from the truth and you don't want to hear it. If that is you, then not only will this text really be not meaningful to you, but our celebration of what we're about to remember and what Jesus did for us will be meaningless to you. But if you want to have that relationship, then I want to share with you the benefits, the joys of having that relationship of being justified by faith. That really is the key phrase there, having been justified by faith. That's the key phrase in these first five verses of Romans 5. And that may seem like a passing phrase to us, but it was that phrase and that concept that was so atrocious in the hearts and minds of those who were leading the Roman Catholic Church over the course of the Middle Ages because they didn't think that it meant justified by faith alone. That was the problem. They were okay with the phrase because obviously it was in Scripture. They said, yes, we are justified by faith, but there was something added to it. It wasn't just justified by faith alone. It was justified by faith and fill in the rest of the blanks. And it wasn't until the 16th century, really, that the spark began to burst into a flame amongst people who were reading the scriptures and realizing the Bible doesn't say that we're justified by faith and works. We're justified by faith alone. So anytime you see the solas, the five solas of the Reformation, you realize that the important there, the important word there is the word sola, alone. Because if we aren't just justified by faith, then in some ways what we have taught here at Calvary is meaningless, what we're about to celebrate is meaningless because there's other ways to be justified. But the reality of what Paul is talking about is that we are justified by faith and here he's going to imply It's by faith alone, not by works. In fact, when he talks to the Galatians, and there's all these people who are saying, you need to not only believe in Christ, but you also need to be circumcised, and you need to do this, this, and that, Paul's going to say, what are you talking about? You're undermining grace. We're justified by faith alone. So this sermon isn't talking about the means of our justification by faith. But really this evening, I want us to focus on four benefits of our justification by faith. I'm going to just lay this foundation that we are justified by faith alone in Christ alone. It's the grace of God alone that does this to the glory of God alone. Having been justified by faith then, though, Paul lists several things that are benefits or blessings to us who have been justified by faith. And this is our meditation for this evening. So let's look at the first one. The first benefit of our justification by faith is, number one, we have peace with God. There is peace with God. I think one of the most frustrating things in all of human history is to read human history and see nothing but war and fighting constantly. I mean, 
as a kid, I think one of the most entertaining things for me to watch on TV was anything that had fighting inside of it. But if you're, if you're anybody who cares about, about history and you see even just the history as it's unfolding in our day today and you see the wars and fightings and in the words of scripture, the wars and rumors of wars, you realize that it's just not changed. It's always been like this. There have always been wars and fighting since the fall. There was a point when we as humans had peace with God. All the way back in Genesis chapter 1, we read that God created everything. God created the cosmos. And on day 6, he made his crowning creation that which was made in his very image. And everything that he looked at that he had made and all the creatures he had made, including the one he called Adam, man, he said, behold, it is very good. He created this man and eventually this woman out of the rib of this man to be in a peaceful relationship with him. And for a time, there was a peaceful relationship with God. That was the way God intended it to be until Genesis 3 happens. And then you get the serpent who is more crafty than any other creature and says to Eve, did God really say? And from that moment on, the seeds of doubt were planted and now the question of peace is in her mind because Satan has convinced her in his deception that God is withholding something from her. So therefore, there's a problem. There is conflict. There's not peace. He's not really being a good, benevolent God. There's something he's holding back from you. And when she eats of the fruit, violating the direct command of God, and she gives to her husband, who was not deceived, and knowingly, willfully violated the command of God, instantly, their eyes were opened, and they knew they were naked. They felt shame. In the words of Paul from the book of Romans, they were no longer God's friends. They now were enemies of God. It was then that peace with God was over. From that point on, humans declared war on God and have been doing so ever since. Do you want peace with God? Peace with God begins by being justified by faith. One of the benefits of being justified by faith in Jesus Christ is you have peace with God again. The whole book of of the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, I really do believe, not only is talking about the glory of God, but it is indeed the story of redemption where from page one all the way through the end of the book, we see God bringing about peace with him. And here's the reality. He had to bring the peace. It took the prince of peace to bring about peace with God. We could not do it ourselves. We're justified by faith alone. That's what I said at the beginning, alone. Which means that peace with God could only happen on God's terms, not on ours. So the first wonderful benefit for those of us who have been justified by faith is we have peace with God.
You are no longer God's enemy. And it's through, he says, our Lord Jesus Christ. There's a second benefit I want to show you, and it's in verse 2. Not only by being justified by faith do we have peace with God once more, as God intended it, but number two, through whom we also have access by faith. So we have peace with God, and we have access to God. You'll remember in the Old Testament, back in Genesis, when Adam and Eve rebelled against God, what is the thing that God does after he curses both the serpent and Adam and Eve? What does he do? He counsels with himself and says, lest they eat of the tree of life and live forever, he drives Adam and Eve out of the Garden of Eden, which I believe really is a symbol of the presence of God, where once before the presence of God was something that was wonderful, they had peace with him, they had access to him, now God says, you are no longer permitted in my presence, and he drives them out. And then he takes this cherubim with a flaming sword that goes every which way so that Adam and Eve no longer could be in the presence of God. In a word, they did not have access to God. And ever since then, when you see people even just get a glimpse, just a moment of the presence of God, they're terrified. There is a fear that fills them. Why over and over again does God have to tell people when they're in his presence or even the angels who reflect the glory of him have to tell people when they see them, don't be afraid because there's something about the holiness, the purity of who God is that instills a fear because no longer do we have peace with God apart from Christ, but we also don't have access to him by faith. We do not have access to God when we are not justified by faith. So when you remember, God is telling Moses, here is the tabernacle. And eventually when they have the temple, here's the temple specifications. What are one of the things they're not allowed to do as far as the priests or people or things like that? What are they not allowed to do? They're not allowed to go into the holy of holies or the most holy place. Why? Because that's, that symbolically represented the presence of God. The presence of God. When Jesus dies on the cross, the Gospels record that there is this moment of darkness and there's these earthquakes that happen. And what happens in the temple? The big, thick veil that separated humanity from the presence of God is split in two from top to bottom, meaning that there was nothing that could have been done from human hands that separated that veil. It had to have been an act of God. And God separates the veil And I believe that the gospel writers record that event and that God himself did that event for the sole purpose of illustrating this very point, that when we're justified by faith in Christ and his death for us, not only do we have peace with God, but now once more, we have access to him. You may be in here today not having trusted in Christ. If that is you, You have access to God on God's terms, and his terms are by faith in Jesus Christ alone. Nothing you can do. Going to church will do nothing. Getting baptized will do nothing. 
Doing good deeds will do nothing to earn you access into God's presence again. You must enter God's presence on his terms and his terms alone. And his terms are that you can access his presence by faith. So we're justified by faith, and the results are we have peace with God. We have access to God. Number three, we have a hope because of God. Notice at the end of verse two, not only do we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand, but we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We have a hope because of God. Where once when we were God's enemies, we were no longer permitted in his presence. We were no longer permitted to enjoy peace with him. But we had no hope of a future. We were cursed. The future that we deserve as rebels against God is not God's presence, is not access to God, is not hope. What we deserve is the judgment of God. That's what we deserve. But here's what happened when we place our faith in Christ, when we're justified by faith, we have peace with God, we have access to God, and now we have a hope because of God. And Paul says we can rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. The end result of all of this, even our hope, is that God would be glorified. And in reality, all of salvation is to that end, that God alone would be magnified. Why else do you think when we talk about the grace of God and when John Newton, that pastor mentioned this morning in his sermon, would just say the word, words, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I can see. Why else would he say that were it not for the fact that God alone was the reason he had the hope that he had? Grace is by definition an act of unmerited kindness and goodness from God. It cannot be earned. You cannot do anything to get a little, uh, grab, grab your cup and open the spigot and hopefully get some grace out of there. It's something that is chosen by God to give to you it's not something that you can earn for yourself. So when we talk about the hope of our future with God, the hope of the reality that even though the world is nasty as it is right now, we know God has given us a vision of what will happen in the future and that that future is one of hope, which is not a wishful thinking, but the reality of confidence in what God has said he would do. So we have peace with God, we have access to God, we ha have hope because of God, and finally, we have glory because of God. Glory because of God. This may be slightly a bit of a stretch in some of our minds here, but look at verse 3. Not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance. And he gives this chain that happens essentially in verses 3 down through verse 5. But that phrase there, glory in tribulations, he says not only do we have peace with God, access to God, and hope because of God, but now we can glory in whatever we, we go into. We can have glory because of God. We can rejoice and, and take hope and confidence. We could even boast because of God is really the idea of what he's suggesting. 
Because even though I may go through tribulations, and believe me, I don't, I don't know half of the things that you in this room have gone through. I don't know half of the things in life you have gone through that God in his providence has directed your steps to. But I do know this. Even though you have gone through that, you can boast because of God, knowing that God has a purpose behind it. It's not meaningless. Some people want us to think that the world is meaningless, that life is meaningless. There is no point. And some of the philosophers throughout human history have said that very thing. Everything is meaningless. Do whatever you want. It doesn't matter. There's a saying that, is a tr- that R.C. Sproul did. He has a, a section in one of his magazines called Table Talk that he would write. And the section th- that he would write in was titled, Right Now Counts Forever. And the reason he said that is because there are some people who think, well, right now only counts for right now. So do what you want right now, but in the end, it's not really going to affect your future. It's not going to affect anybody else. It just counts for right now. And then there's other people who say, well, right now really doesn't count at all. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. We're really just random, meaningless hunks of flesh There's no point to any of this. Right now doesn't even count for anything. So really do whatever you want. But the reality of the Christian faith is that we know right now does count. And as R.C. Sproul said, it counts forever. What you do now will have an impact for what happens to you in eternity. It will have eternal consequences. Right now counts forever. And when you think about what's going on in your life as a Christian, it may be tempting to swallow the Kool-Aid that the world gives. Just abandon Jesus. There's no point in it. Just say no to Jesus. Say that this whole Christianity thing is not worth it and just go do whatever else you want to do in life. Just don't worry about the whole Christianity thing. It's meaningless. There's no point to it. That might be tempting at times because even though we sang at the cross, where I first saw the light and the burden of my heart rolled away, it was there by faith I received my sight, and now I'm happy all the day. I'll be honest, I was seeing those words, and I thought, there's some days I'm not really all that happy. There may be times when it's tempting to just throw in the towel as a Christian. But we have been given assurance by God that everything that happens to us and around us is happening for a purpose. And so Paul says, I can glory, I can boast in tribulations because I know this, and this is how the New King James translates it. I know this, that tribulation produces in me perseverance. There is going to be in me not a sprinter, but a marathon runner. I'm not in a hundred-yard dash I'm running for miles and miles. And when I go through persecutions and I go through tribulations and troubles in life, I realize this, that God has a purpose in it. And so what is happening to me is not that I'm seeing short-term, I'm seeing long-term, which means I am willing to go in this for the long haul. But it also produces in me, that perseverance produces in me a proven character. I am not going to be the same person because of this race. In the words of, I think it's 2 Corinthians 3, I am being changed from one degree of glory to the next. I'm being transformed, 
which means some of you, when you see Rodney King a year from now, are not going to see the same Rodney King. And Rodney King, when he sees you, hopefully will not see the same you because we're being transformed and changed from one degree of glory, from one level of glory to the next. And that is producing in us a proven character. And what is that character proving within us? Verse 4, it's giving us a hope. We've already talked about the hope we have because of God. And here's how he concludes this. Hope doesn't disappoint. It's not a hope that is wishful thinking. It's not a hope that ultimately we have a confident expectation in, but God's going to pull the rug under our feet and we're going to come crashing down to reality. It's a hope that doesn't disappoint. People will disappoint you. We will be disappointed in life, but the reality is is our hope in God will not disappoint. And here's what Paul says, because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts. We've experienced, we have in the words of the psalmist, tasted and seen that the Lord is good. And all of this is by means of the Holy Spirit who was given to us. When you were justified by faith, you had peace with God, you had access to God, you had hope in God, and you had glory. You could glory because of God. And all of this because God has given to you his Holy Spirit. These are the wonderful, wonderful benefits you have as a Christian. It doesn't mean life is easy. Life will be filled with tribulations, like Paul says. But the reality is, is we have a hope that nobody else has. And the greatest joy, I think, if, if you were to ask me, what, what is the one, the one thing in here that really I cling to? It's either one of the first two, peace with God or access to God. Because the fact is, when you walk through the rest of life, there will be ups and downs in your mind as you try to cling to the promises God has given to us. But I can know this. When I am justified by faith, regardless of my feelings, I have peace with God again, and I have access to him again, which means I can come boldly before the throne of grace, and I can ask anything. I can ask for wisdom, and he won't reproach me for asking. He'll give it to me liberally. There's all these blessings that we have. So I conclude with two questions. The first is, have you been justified by faith and known what these wonderful blessings are? And the second question is for those who have experienced that justification by faith. Do you realize that what we're about to celebrate here is not a ritual, but a remembrance and a celebration of these benefits? We are together as a group of Christians, together, when we eat that bread and when we drink the juice in that cup, we are together saying, I have been justified by faith. I have peace with God. I have access to God. I have hope because of God. I can glory because of God in life. All of those things are only because of what Christ has done for us, and that's what we celebrate. So I'll ask you to turn now as we prepare to celebrate together to Luke chapter 22. Here we see Jesus celebrating the Passover with his disciples. And I'm going to begin reading in verse 7 and read down through verse 20. And I'm reading from the New King James Version here, which says, Then came the day of unleavened bread when the Passover must be killed. 
And he sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat. So they said to him, Where do you want us to prepare? And he said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him into the house which he enters. Then you shall say to the master of the house, The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? Then he will show you a large furnished upper room. There, make ready. So they went and found it just as he had said to them, and they prepared the Passover. When the hour had come, he sat down, and the twelve apostles with him. Then he said to them, With fervent desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you, because I suffer. For I say to you, I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and said, Take, take this and to divide it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. The justification we have by faith is because of what Jesus did, and he's symbolizing what he did. And I I really liked uh, Dr. Hartman's, Craig Hartman's, explanation of the Passover and how Jesus is talking about celebrating the Passover, which was an event recorded in Exodus, but now is saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this not in remembrance of the Passover, but in remembrance of me. And he says the same thing for the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. And and it's rooted in this Jewish Old Testament tradition that they had where they're remembering what God had done for them. And now Jesus is saying, there is a significant event about to happen and I want you to realize what it's for. And not only that, but I want you to tell people to keep remembering it. And don't forget till I come back. That's what we're about to do. We're about to remember what Jesus did to praise him for these wonderful benefits that we have because of being justified by faith and remember with thankful hearts the cost it took for our redemption. I'm going to pray. As I pray, I ask the gentleman who will be helping with the communion table to come and uh, help us prepare. And then after I'm done praying, we'll give a few moments where we can just talk to the Lord, where we can thank him for what he has done Thank him for the fellow Christians who are in this room with us that we can celebrate this with. We're not alone. We've been redeemed together with other people by the blood of Christ. And then after that, we will celebrate the Lord's table together. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, these wonderful benefits that we have because of the blood of Christ, because of the cross, we have access to you. We have peace with you. We have hope, a future hope, and we can boast in whatever you allow us to go through in life. We can glory in all of this because of what Christ has done.
We thank you, Lord. We praise you that you have in mercy and kindness reached down to save rebels. And most of us, if not all of us in this room, would probably echo the Apostle Paul, rebels of whom I am chief. So we thank you for this opportunity to remember together what you have done. And we ask that all of this would be done to the glory of your name. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's take a few moments of silence.